Hi, this is Les McEwen of Predictable Success, and you're listening to the Leader Lab Podcast. So who are you and what do you do? Well, uh, my name is Les McEwen, and uh, I write books seemingly mostly these days. Uh, my uh, day job is I'm a business growth consultant, and I spend my time with uh, teams and groups uh, who work for organizations that, for one reason or another, are stuck, and I help them get unstuck. And uh, I guess that's two-thirds of what I do, first-third writing, second third is consulting and coaching and the third third is uh speaking uh you know going to large groups and sharing the methodology that I call predictable success. Very cool. And and uh the predictable success I'm I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast the very first ever Leader Lab return guest. Um because I w- we wanted to see predictable success the, the podcast was well received the book was obviously even better received. Uh and this has led to a follow-up book that we'll talk about. But first I, I kind of want to ask what's What's been the reaction to predictable success? And maybe for those that haven't listened to the first time you were on, on the air with us, talk briefly about what is predictable success and then talk a little about the reaction you've had to it since the, book, the first book came out. Sure. Um, well, predictable success is the business growth methodology that I've developed uh, out of working with launching my own businesses, working with hundreds of other businesses over the years. And essentially... Um, the predictable success model falls into two parts. The first book, last year's book, uh, called Predictable Success, um, shares the first half of the model, and my uh, current book, The Synergist, which we're going to talk about shortly, uh, shares the other half. Um, the first half is all about this, really the the what of what happens to organizations, um, and the second book, The Synergist, talks about why it happens. Uh, Predictable Success, last year's book, shows the seven stages, three three growth stages, the apex and then three decline stages that every organization, group, division, department, project, team goes through. And um, when I published it, uh, it was published in June of 2010. Uh, I guess the reaction uh, surprised me in two ways. First of all, it hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list at number six. It hit USA Today at number five, at Amazon at number two. Uh, it hadn't been for Tony Shea and the Zappos uh, delivering happiness books, we'd have hit number one. Um, and that just amazed me. I, I was just delighted to hit those bestseller lists. And, you know, the, this, the ridiculous uh, notion that people who haven't known me for the previous 55 years now treat me like a best-selling author is something that I'm still getting used to and is, is great, great fun. Uh, on the other side, the... Um, the side that surprised me, I guess, more than anything, was that the model, which I've always known to be intuitive, uh, it's based on observation, it's not something that I worked out from first principles, uh, just to have uh, the number of people ca- literally call me up or send me emails and say, I absolutely, first of all, I wish I had this book 15 years ago, and secondly, I, it absolutely nails exactly where I am and what I need to do. And that was very gratifying, because it's one thing to have a model that you can deliver, let's say, in a one-day workshop where you've got a group of people in a room and you can go whatever direction they want you to go in. But to sit down and try to make it linear so that you can start at the first page of a book and read through to the end and get the sense of the holistic nature of the model. I didn't know whether I'd pull that off or not, frankly, David, and it wasn't until I started getting those emails and phone calls that I really felt very, very gratified that it apparently I did. Yeah, no, I, I've been, I won't say I've been shocked by the, the reaction 
that's been going on. I sort of knew as I was reading the book, the preview copy of it, I I got through, I, I got the idea that a lot of the life cycles that you came up with, you said it is intuitive. I, I thought it, it paralleled a lot of the research on organizational life cycles, and uh, it just made perfect sense. And it did it in a way that I think it explains life cycles much better than what your average sort of academic read is, which is why uh, I'm so excited to have you on for the first for the first time. So I'm, I'm not, I, I know you said you were a bit surprised, especially about treating, being treated like a best-selling author, but um, it makes it makes perfect sense having having read the book and, and now having read the follow-up, uh, which is The Synergist. Uh, let, let me ask, let me put it this way, actually. I, the Synergist, if I remember right, I'd ask you what led you to follow up with The Synergist, but I believe you already had it in your head when you were writing Predictable Success. So just talk a little bit about why The Synergist uh, is a follow-up to Predictable Success and what it covers. Uh, well, largely because it, it should have been part of the first book, but it w- the first book would have just been way too big, didn't it? It would have been uh, inaccessible for people, and accessibility was what I was going for, uh, as you said a moment ago. Uh, above all else, there are quite a lot of uh, books about life cycles and stuff like that, that that aren't as accessible as predictable success. And if I had tried to squeeze the synergist in there, uh, which I did do, actually, initially. Uh, I, I recognized immediately it was just not going to work. Uh, for me, for what I do and for what I've been doing for 30 years, when I uh, hear myself use the phrase predictable success, when I talk about predictable success, to me, the whole model is the are, are, are both of the books combined. The life cycle, which the first book, co- book covers, management styles, which the second book covers, they together make up what it, it, I hear in my head whenever I say the words predictable success. As it happened, it, uh, it, it just was so easy to surgically slice the two apart. I didn't, I didn't think it would be, but it was, it, it was simple to do it as it turned out. And because it was so simple to do it, and because it would make both books very, very much more readable, it just seemed sensible to do it. So really, the answer is it should have been there in the first place, but better that it wasn't. And now it really completes the, uh, the picture overall. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things I enjoy about reading through the synergist is that it starts out and it could be its own, its own standalone book. And then it ties back into predictable success covering, you know, obviously it's better to have read predictable success, but even if you haven't, you can kind of read this one first and get a top line idea of the, of the uh, cycles and the stages uh, and then go back and read predictable success and it flows. So it, it works coming or going. It's not, you know, it's not like a fiction series where you should have to read one and then and then yeah. read two. You kind of get them, get them both. I think it does a great job of that. Yeah, thanks. That that was the only real tricky bit of splitting them up. Once I did make the decision to split them up, and this probably um, you know makes the book nerds happier than than, than most of our listeners here. But uh, once I did decide to split them up, really the only difficulty was. Um, I wanted to make sure that they were both standalone added value and that you didn't have to have read one to read the other. And indeed, as it turned out, again, it just shows you when we start to do a thing, uh, you know, you learn more about your own art and your own artistry as you as you work at it. As it turned out, uh, what I discovered, of course, is that the, uh, predictable success about the life cycles has got its own audience who need to go there first, and they're generally founder owners or C-level executives who are running departments, divisions, or, or uh, full-blown organizations. Whereas the nice thing about the synergist is it's really applicable. Everything that's in there is applicable to anybody from the receptionist you know, up and down throughout the org chart. 
and therefore I was able to stay well away from the life cycle side of it. I don't, it you really, I don't think you'd know that the life cycle component was a complementary piece until you get to maybe chapter five or six of, of the synergist. Uh, and then I can tie it in there quite neatly, and it does link back to the previous book quite well if you want to go there. Um, but really, anybody who's in business who has to go and work with and interface with anybody else, in other words, everybody, uh, really can benefit from the synergist, unlike predictable success, which is much more for people who are controlling some sort of an enterprise or a division or a department. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree. The way that, you, you know, you write out what the three natural uh, styles of executives or styles of, of, of individuals, no matter what their job is, uh, you can see it in people across the level, the entire organization. And I know from your experience, it's mostly dealing with senior level executives. But you're exactly right. If you if you put it in the hand of someone in in a mail room of a large organization, they'd still be able to tell you what the people in that mail room what their operating styles are. And so exactly. on that on that note, the the book leads with these three natural types of executives: the, the visionary, the processor, and the operator. Um, could you talk a little bit about what those what those styles are and and what those natural types are, and then. Later, we'll talk about the synergist and how he gets them to all sort of how he or she gets them to play well together. Sure. Well, I, just to repeat what I, I mentioned at the top of the call, David, the, the key thing to bear in mind here is that what I'm about to share isn't something that I sat down and constructed. This isn't something that I uh, sort of, again, to use that phrase, academically uh, plowed through. Um, I backed into this. The, the way I got to understanding, uh, to understand these styles, these management styles, these uh, leadership operating styles, is that I was working with organizations that uh, comprised really good, high-powered, uh, high-achieving senior management teams that still many of them stalled out and, and got stuck and either gridlocked uh, or began to decline. And it was in trying to work out what the commonalities, what the reasons were for that happening, that I began to see these patterns of these three styles. It wasn't that I was trying to you know, complete some sort of a graph or a flowchart. Uh, and so what I saw occurring again and again were uh, three natural uh, styles, let's call them management styles. They actually appear in anybody who goes to, to work, who goes to work with any group or team, but just for shorthand, let's call them management styles. And uh, these three styles appear in the raw. They're, 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 they're styles that we all tend towards. And broadly, they're what I call the visionary style. And the visionary is, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. Somebody who works from 30,000 feet, um, likes the long term, works with big concepts, isn't so good with follow through, um, maybe has a short ADD, short term of, a sp of attention, but gets really passionate about things and fired out up about stuff. Um, always sparking off bright ideas. Don't like to be, you know, stuck to routine and detailed granular work, and like to be free and have autonomy and so forth. And those are the people that typically start businesses and projects and groups off. Uh, but left to themselves, they're not really going to deliver much. And what they tend to do very early on is they hook up with the second of the three styles, and that's what I call the operator. The operator is just that, is the, is the person that goes and makes things happen. And the operator doesn't have that, uh, I want to start with a blank sheet of paper type of mentality that the visionary has, doesn't have that um, sort of tendency to think strategically and from the big level. But boy, do they get things done. They'll take the visionary's vision, break it down into a series of action points, and then they'll go through brick walls to make it happen. And the visionary and the operator together are, are really 
wonderful combination. They're symbiotic. They need each other. They feed off each other. Visionary needs the operator to complete stuff. The operator needs the visionary to set the agenda to begin with. And together, they really build the business through its early uh, years of development or take the group or project team uh, through its early stages. But what happens with any group doing anything is that at some point, they need to bring in what I call the processor, and that's the person who's going to bring systems and processes and routine and consistency to what's happening. Because neither the visionary or the operator are that way inclined. They're really improvisation merchants. They'll, they'll just make it up as they go along each day, and they'll do really well. But at some point, um, the success and complexity of what they're doing overwhelms their ability to improvise, and they at this point need to hook up with the processor. And the theory is, and this is really where the book came from. The theory would be that those three are exactly what you need to make any team work successfully. And once you put those three together, you know there should be sparks and uh, some smoke and energy, and waboom, we've got a high-performing team that can do anything. And the reality is that the opposite happens. The, the VO and P, the visionary operator and processor, uh, once they combine, they form an unstable triangle. Uh, and, and they almost immediately fall into either gridlock or compromise. And the visionary operator pro processor triangle isn't one that's going to deliver results. And that's really what I was seeing with these uh, groups of business people that I was working with, was that they were teams composed, comprised almost randomly of visionaries, operators, processors. And it was, it was more or less guaranteed that they were going to uh, gridlock or compromise and not get anything done. And so to finish the model, uh, what the synergist is about is really me putting a name to something that happens very painfully, uh, but it happens organically, but over a long period of time, and as I say, exceptionally painfully. And what that, is, what that thing is that happens is that the VO and P eventually work out that this isn't just personality clashes going on, because that's what it feels like at the beginning. This is a systemic issue that visionaries, operators, processors don't mix. And somewhere along the line, somebody works out that they've got to step out of their natural style, their visionary operator or processor natural style, from, not all the time, but from time to time, and somehow transcend that natural style and adopt what you and I would just call an adult approach uh, to, 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 to put the enterprise's in, um, interests above their own. And, and, and what I've called that shift is moving into synergist mode. I just gave it a name. It's a thing that people learn to do. But normally their, their knuckles are really bruised. Their shins are aching by the time they've worked this out, metaphorically speaking. And all I've done in the book is I've put together what I see those uh, high-performing teams do to shift into synergist mode, to break the VOP triangle. And I've really just codified what I see high-performing teams do, maybe over a, anywhere from six months to three years. Uh, you can read this book in a day and a half and work out what you need to do to break out of the VOP triangle. And I, and I love that idea that it takes, that, that the natural style should probably probably get along and be this dynamic team, dynamic trio, I guess. And yet... They don't because of the exact reasons that they they have different strengths, et cetera. Now, you say it's interesting because the book talks about some people who develop into kind of natural synergists, but then you also say that all of those different operating styles can, can kind of learn to be that synergist. How, how does somebody go about – I mean, I, obviously, I don't want to give away everything in the book, but a, a top-line level of – yeah. Uh, but a, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, again, one of the things that I've worked out after the, the fact, um, actually over the years, um, 
after I sort of got this model in my head is I began to notice that there are a number of natural synergists, but they're very, very rare. The tendency is that for us to to be uh, mostly a visionary operator or processor. Now, very few people are just one of those things. Most people are, you know, a lot of V and, and some operator or a lot of operator and a little processor. Uh, but we all tend towards one or other of those. I would say there are probably less than one in 500 people are natural synergists, but there are a few of them that occur. The problem is that they're so rare that most teams don't have them. But the good news is, and by what I mean, by the way, by a natural synergist, is somebody who, who in and of themselves, has got a sort of intuitive sense that when they get into a group or team environment, they need to suppress some of their more, their more extreme tendencies and to work for the greater good of the group as a whole. They tend to often be facilitators and working in that type of a mode. Anyway, they're relatively rare. So what uh, I've noticed is that from the visionary operator and processor group, that's where the synergist needs to come from for most teams. Um, typically, it's the visionary who first works this out from first principles. They do it, of course, subconsciously. They don't use any of the terminology that I'm using here. Um, but what what happens is that the visionary, for two reasons, tends to get there first. One is that being visionaries, they're always trying things and experimenting and trying to work out how to fix this. That's the way their brains operate. And secondly, more often than not, the visionaries have got more sweat equity in the success of whatever the enterprise is than everybody else because visionaries are usually there right at the beginning. So it's a company. The visionary is often the founder owner. If it's a project or a group or a team, the visionary is, obviously, is often the one that, that, that thought up the idea to do this thing in the first place. And so because they've got more skin in the game, they sort of uh, bludgeon their way toward uh, uh, the sort of synergist uh, mentality quickest. Um, next would be the processors. Uh, they they get there more slowly, but they get there because they've got a process pattern recognition mindset, and they see the loose ends of how shifting the way they they um, approach things makes a difference. It's sort of like a mathematical equation to them, and they say, "Well, let's try a little bit more of that." It's like punching up a variable in an equation. Let's try a bit more of that, and they see it works, and and they will grab all their way there uh, in due course. Often, the one that that gets there least. Um, on their own is the operator. And the reason for that is operators really don't like group uh, interactions to start with. They tend to much prefer just being out there making things happen. And so when they see the group break down, they don't have a natural tendency to try to fix this. There's a little uh, tiny um, uh, devil on their shoulder that's going, whoopee, broken team, I don't have to go anymore. I can go do other stuff. And so they don't tend to get there too quickly. Visionary first and processor second. Now, as as a natural visionary, I tend to uh, tend to really enjoy that it's the visionary that are most likely to turn into this. <laughs> yeah, but of course, as a natural visionary, what you'll also be, uh, be very aware of is that they they lack the discipline. They're, they're least disciplined of the three, and often they see it but don't have the you know really just the self accountability to force it and see it through. But you're quite right; they they are the ones that get there first. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm all over it. It, it. The point is that we figured out what we need to do. We got bored and and moved on <laughs> to something else afterwards. But exactly. you know, it it just it just goes to show the need for a, a synergist role. You know, and if you if you really think about it, this this is my thoughts after putting down the book after reading it. If you really think about it, this whole these whole ideas, they're quite biblical. You know, Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers," and and the shareholders say, "Blessed are the synergists," uh, because <laughs> they get everybody to work on the same team. <laughs> that's very <So>. good <laughs> I may well use that <laughs> oh, feel, 
Feel free, feel free. But but let me know that make sure we can get this interview up and online so we can get it documented as far as the origin. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, well, uh, if you want to, speaking to the listeners, if you want to figure out how, how to be blessed, how to be the peacemaker, right, um, and how to become that synergist role in your team, if any of this sounds familiar, and if it doesn't, that's probably because you work alone uh, in a garage somewhere. But if you work with people, most of this should sound familiar. And if you want to figure out how to how to make it work, I encourage you to check out the synergist. And if you haven't already, check out the predictable success as well. Uh, Les, I want to shift to you a little bit. I, uh, I, I don't know your natural style. I have a feeling on what it is. But uh, based on that, that probably changes. You're, you're probably off reading something new. And, and what are you reading right now? I, I, I've got um, – I'm going to have to fess up to something. Well, fess up to two things. One, one is fess up to the listeners that you did let me know ahead of time what some of your questions would be. So I've blown the gaff on that. But secondly, thinking about that, uh, I'm going to have to come clean – and say something surprising. I don't read business books. I, I really try to stay away from them. I do that for two reasons. Uh, well, three reasons, really. One is I'm working all day at business, so I like a change of pace. Um, the second thing is I, I, I really find business books uh, often uh, really, really tough to get through. Uh, but the third thing is that the ones that I don't find tough to go get through, the ones that are the best that I read, I'm scared stiff of plagiarizing them. It's, it's one of the reasons why, for example, I don't read Seth Godin's blog. Um, I, stopped about, I stopped about three years ago. And the reason is that I found I'd write this fantastic blog piece of my own, and then a little voice would say to me, wait a minute. I'm not 100% sure that's your idea to start with, Les. And then, of course, I discover I was just plagiarizing what Seth Godin was doing. So I, I don't read many uh, business books at all. I do, I'm an avaricious reader. Um, I, this is going to completely lose the majority of our audience, but I've just finished plowing through uh, probably about 3,500 pages of the diaries of a chap called Alistair Campbell. And Alistair Campbell was essentially Tony Blair's Carl Rove. He was uh, Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister's uh, Chief Press Secretary for many, many years. It's a different type of role than Press Secretary here in the US. Uh, but he wrote the most magnificent diaries, very detailed, wrote them every day. And of course, Blair lived through many, many, including 9-11, many, many uh, uh, world-changing events, including one that impacted my life a lot, which was the peace process in Ireland. Uh, but the fascinating thing is, and I, and I uh, emailed uh, this guy, uh, the author, uh, I've heard back from him yet, but I emailed him to say, it's the most uh, detailed and gripping account of how teams work well and don't work well that I've ever read. It's just unbelievable. It's like having your ear to the door of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire on a day-by-day basis. So that's that's been about, I think, those three volumes that I've read so far, about a 1,000 pages each. I've been at that for about a year now. Uh, I have biographies strewn around the house. Um, I'm looking forward to reading Isaacson's biography of uh, Steve Jobs, which is as close as I'll get to business reading. Um, but I'll I'll pick up anything that that's well written. I love I love good fiction. I love well read fiction. I've got a uh, one of my uh, few very few uh, snobbish um, affectations is that I was reading Swedish noir thrillers before anybody had ever heard of Stieg Larsson. Um, uh, uh, there's an author there called Henning Mankell who writes fantastic detective fiction, so I like to read all of that. So I could go on forever. I'm a I'm a bibliophile and I love books. Oh, absolutely. No, not a problem. And, I, and I, I seem to remember that from the first time we had you on, too, about the not business books. I, I like it, actually. We're moving in December. The holiday season is when I basically make up on my backlog of fiction. And it's a, sort of time to turn the brain, not the brain off, but shift 
from the left side to the right side, as it were, or, or whichever one of those it is. Um, <laughs> switch, switch back and forth and enjoy some, some decent red fiction, some good biographies, that sort of stuff, instead of having to process through um, kind of all of the business stuff. And, and by the way, on, on the plagiarism thing, I, one, of, one, of our more, one of our more favorite guests, uh, Bob Sutton, actually coined a term that you should use in your defense and just go ahead and publish those posts, because I use this in my defense, and that's, that is Sutton's Law which is uh, every new idea is not actually new. Indeed, even this law was copied from someone else. Uh. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's sort of plagiarism in its own right, plus it's self-deprecating. Uh, I, I love it. Very good. Yes. Well, I will most so, definitely be using that. Yeah, so, you know, it, it just goes, it's a, it's a good defense. You can't, you can't copyright an idea, right? It's all about implementation. Love it. So. <laughs> well, uh, shift, shifting gears, I know we're, we're in the, the midst of the book launch, but I want to know, I, I seem to remember either a conversation for the podcast or just one of our offline conversations, you telling me there's, there's actually more to this whole grand, grand evil plan of yours than just predictable success and the synergist. What else is on the horizon for you? Um, well, nothing much for a little while because the marketing of the synergy is going to be uh, it would be sort of pretty all-consuming from now through to probably the end of March. Um, the next step will be to produce. Uh, I'd like to produce a, a soft cover. Um, if you've ever seen like large print books, you know that are printed uh, for the, for folks that. Um, uh, can't squint down enough to see the the tiny print they seem to put in newspapers and books these days. I'd like to produce a workbook that's that sort of loose, uh, soft cover, large print format that people can take and uh, apply the principles of both books, the principle, uh, the success and synergist principles, um, after having taken an assessment. So that you know, the assessment will say, "This is where your organization is on the life cycle chart, and here's your, here's the management styles of you and/or your your team." So, given the result from here, go start in chapter six or in chapter three, and here's a path through the the workbook that you should take. Um, I've just begun to mull how that might work out, and I think it's going to have to have a, a large combination of online and print um, uh, resources, and I'm excited about that. Uh, and that'll probably complete the the, um, the the book part of what's going on here, uh, and and thankfully uh, maybe after that be able to take a long earned rest from stringing words together. Mm, yeah, but I'll I'll be honest in our interactions, you you seem to strike me as a more heavy visionary type person, and so I, I don't know how long you'll be resting for. Well, uh, it's <laughs> you're right there. You mentioned uh, my own style. Uh, I'm a, a style that is rare in the wider context, but very common in consultants, which is VP. Um, visionaries and processors tend not to mix usually, but a lot of consultants are uh, VPs. In other words, they like to have the big picture, and they like to noodle around with systems and processes that would help implement it. What we don't like to do is get our fingers uh, dirty actually making it happen, uh, which is why we're consultants and not actually not a proper job um so, so you're right i'll probably come up with a whole bunch of other stuff and uh, i'll have great ideas as to how it'll all integrate with everything else but um i really could do with what winston churchill uh, did i mean he was winston churchill as well has been a wonderful war leader of course was a prolific author he wrote uh, maybe 35 40 books and uh the way he did it was he had an entire floor of his house in Chartwell, which was given over to about a dozen people who were basically his writing studio, and they churned out stuff from you know what he would dictate from the bath 
in the morning, and then he'd just scan the proofs in the evening and make uh, minor adjustments, and, and he often had three or four books that he was writing on the go at the same time. So, and maybe bring back that mechanism of a contrain Maxie the dog, who's far as asleep beside me here, um, to, to, despite the absence of an opposable thumb, learn how to type, I could maybe double my output. Well, you know, that really just takes reinventing the keyboard, you know? <laughs> yes, the doggy keyboard. There's another idea yeah. there. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. absolutely. No, that uh, sounds like you're stumbling into a, a good model here. You're going to need an operator, though, and that I hope you don't choose the dog for your own sake. Um, but what, whatever comes of that of that dog project, well, I'm sure we'll be talking about it. We'll probably have you back here in Leader Lab to talk about it and its its success as well. In the meantime, we encourage everybody to check out Predictable Success, learn how to be a synergist. If you still don't know what that means, I don't know where you've been for the past 20 minutes or so, but check out the synergist and learn how to become one. Uh, Les, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 